We continue our study uh, where Jesus was already um, starting to be followed around by the religious leaders. Um, They were trying to be critical and we've already started to get into that section. Mark again is a fast paced, hard hitting. We're only in chapter three. And um, as far as the harmony of the gospels, I'll show you this a little bit later. Um, We're kind of in the middle right now of Jesus's ministry, Uh, maybe even the middle year, uh, you know, of the three years of ministry. Uh, you know, it only takes us to Mark chapter three to get, to get uh, halfway through his ministry. Mark's fast paced. But I also love how much Mark gives us. There's all kinds of good information here for you and for me uh, that we can go through. But, um, you know, we, we wrapped up last time. Do you remember where um, Jesus and his disciples were, um, you know, plucking ears of corn on the Sabbath day? We saw that last week. And and how the Pharisees came and said, you know, why is, why is your master Jesus doing that which is not lawful? Jesus is breaking the law. And it's cool because Jesus, you know, uh, you know basically tells them, you know, you, you guys are off on this whole thing. Um, you're missing the whole point of the Sabbath. In fact, the last two verses of Mark chapter two, the Sabbath was made for a man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of also the Sabbath. And um, this is something we learned. Why did the guys not fast? Uh, because Jesus was with them. They didn't need to fast when the bridegroom was there. Uh, we saw that last week. Uh, why are they picking corn and not worried about the Sabbath? Because the Lord of the Sabbath is right there with them. Um, and that's one of the things we have to remember even as a church. So we don't do things out of legalism. Uh, if you're fasting or praying or keeping a Sabbath, we do it out of love and as a response uh, to what God has done. It's, it's something, it's not a got to, it's a get to. Um, and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, all these leaders, scribes, they've totally lost their way on this so far. Um, and if you think we uh, you know, covered this subject last week, oh, we're only scratching the surface now. In chapter three, we're gonna pick it up and um, we're gonna see how this, uh, this starts to put Jesus in their minds as uh, a breaker of the law. Now, I wanna kind of cover something quickly, just, um, you know, this idea of the Sabbath. Um, There in the Old Testament, the 10 Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the word holy means separate, different from the other days. It should be unique. And, And by the way, if you're keeping the Sabbath, not out of legalism, which you shouldn't be, but if you're keeping the Sabbath, which I think is a good principle for us in the word, and we should, do that as a blessing, a get to, not a got to. One of the marks of a good Sabbath day keeper is not that you're you know, um, legalistically telling people you can't work or you can't carry your false teeth or you can't put on your wooden leg like they were doing in those days. But instead, it's more of how is your Sabbath day different than the rest of the days during the week? There should be a day that's set apart, a day of rest, to focus in on the Lord and to do something different than you normally do. And um, we've talked about that. We've done whole teachings on the way a New Testament Christian church should practice the Sabbath day, keeping the Sabbath. Um, But the spirit of the law of the Sabbath was lost, Um, but they were trying to keep it to the letter of the law. And and Jesus did not break any laws. now, um, what's interesting, by the way, um, is here in, you know, in Mark chapter two, where we were last week, um, they basically were starting to, to condemn Jesus that he was a lawbreaker in Mark chapter two. Um, and, but one of the things uh, that Jesus was doing was actually more, he was more fulfilling the law 
than even, not, not only not breaking it, but he was actually doing what the law permitted. In fact, Deuteronomy 23, you might jot this down in your notes. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, you can remember Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25, uh, the, the verses 24 and 25. It's, remember there, the law, if you were with us only you know, eight years ago when we were in Deuteronomy, uh, we studied um, when you come to your neighbor's vineyard, um, you, can, you can glean grapes or corn from the vine. In fact, the law said that when you harvested your field to leave the corners of your field unharvested, that was the law. Why? So that strangers could come by. It was sort of their kind of a welfare program, really. Strangers who were poor and broke and didn't have enough money or travelers that were weary along the way, they could stop and legally glean corn. Um, you couldn't, remember there was a rule, you couldn't take a sickle and start harvesting their crops. You, you only pick, pluck stuff by hand. It was, it was not to be like, oh, and you, you also couldn't carry it in a basket. Only that which you could carry with your hands was that which you could harvest. So uh, people, it was kind of cool how the Bible put parameters around kindness and generosity, but it was still there. Jesus was doing exactly what the law said by gleaning corn in the field. Um, also Leviticus 23, 22, talked about them leaving that you know food to the poor, to the stranger and what have you. So um, Jesus was not breaking the law as they accused him, but he was breaking tradition. Um, this is where uh, I, I almost find myself probably in a sinful way, getting a sick joy out of breaking tradition, uh, like with wearing shorts. People are like, oh, you can't wear shorts, you know? You're a pastor in your city. If you did a funeral, would you wear shorts? If they let me. Um, you know, people ask me that question. Uh, if they'd let me, I sure would, because I think it's, you know, shorts are comfortable and I like being comfortable. It's, funerals are uncomfortable enough. Um, you know, like it's a funny thing because people get all up in a tizzy, like it's some law that you're supposed to. And, and I use that one because it's the most maybe obvious one. But, but whenever somebody starts putting laws and rules around you that are not in the Bible, um, you know, I think we can be like Jesus and just say, you know what, you're worried about tradition. Uh, and actually, some of your traditions, well, there are such things as good traditions. And, and man, we can judge for ourselves whether it's a good tradition or a bad tradition. For example, um, is bowing your head and closing your eyes the law of the Bible when you pray? No. What is it? Well, it's a tradition. Your mama taught you that tradition, didn't she? My mom did, because I would be pulling Jenny's hair or Tammy's hair and, during prayer time, and she'd, Brett, close, fold your hands and close your eyes. Okay. And I was like, it was a way to keep me sort of uh, focused in my prayer time at the dinner table. Uh, so the question, is that a good tradition or a bad tradition? Well, it's good. I think it's a good tradition, especially if you're a child. But one of the reasons it might be bad, I'll tell you when it becomes bad, when you think prayer has to be on your knees with your hands folded thus and your heads bowed and eyes closed. Unless, unless you're doing that, that's not really even prayer. No, see people, I think people don't pray because they think they have to do it in a certain way. Um, when you could be praying as you're driving down the freeway and hopefully you're not folding your hands and closing your eyes. Of course, unless you're driving a Tesla. But other than that, I'm, I'm not, you should probably just pray otherwise if, if you're doing that. But anyway, um, I, I digress. But yeah, we have to be careful with traditions. There's good things, there's bad things we can pick and choose. But when it comes to the Bible, man, that's you know, uh, indisputable, irrevocable, and it's for all time. So Jesus was breaking the laws. The Mishnah and the Talmud were uh, basically 
the, the clarifications and commentary on the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So the Jews wrote all these traditions and they started um, elaborating on what the Sabbath day really should look like in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. Um, and, uh, and what I love about Jesus here is he didn't respond with, you know, when they said, you're breaking the law. Jesus said, your law is all messed up. You guys are wacko. Uh, I made this corn, so zip it. Like, that's not what he said. <laughs> he could have. Um, but um, Jesus did respond. If you remember, I, I'm trying to set the stage for this next chapter because Jesus did respond with um, love over the law. Remember that? When he talked about the, the Old Testament story, as we looked at it right there from 1 Samuel 21, where Jesus, uh, Jesus refers to David as he goes to Abiathar, the high priest at that place. At, remember that place called Nob? And, he, and, and David ate the bread with his men, the bread from the, sh the table of showbread. That was not even really lawful to do that, not even with biblical law. So Jesus, and the, the, you know, David and his men were hungry, so they ate the bread and that was okay. Um, why then could we not eat bread even if it's the Sabbath day? He's making the, the case that love supersedes the law. And that's, that's kind of how he did this. Now, Jesus for uh, centuries... Uh, Jews, pardon me, for centuries have dealt with, um, you know, what, what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And it's just gotten weirder and weirder about the Sabbath day. Um, I remember watching the movie Chariots of Fire. Remember that? And I thought it was a great movie. And, and there was a cool thing about a guy's conviction and all that stuff. But at the same time, I was kind of like, just run. Like it's a Sabbath day. So you're in the Olympics. It's a once in a lifetime chance. And I get it. I get that he had a conviction to say, I'm not gonna do any work on the Sabbath. Um, but in some ways, uh, just some food for thought. I'm sure I'm making some of you Chariot of Fire fan, fans angry. But, um, you know, um, there, there, it gets even more crazy than that. If you don't know the story of Chariots of Fire, a guy wouldn't run his event because the event was on the Sabbath. Um, uh, and it's, it was an interesting movie and, and cool in a lot of ways. But it got weirder. Did you know there's stories of Jewish armies uh, throughout history, actually, but one particular battle I'm thinking of um, where the Jewish armies were battling and they were like, you know, SEAL Team 6, like warrior level combatants. I mean, these guys were amazing. Uh, right up until the Sabbath day, uh, they, would, they would put down their arms on the Sabbath because they couldn't lift, they took these, this legalistic view of the Sabbath and, um, and they laid down their arms. There was one story of these, uh, you know, high profile soldiers that were winning, uh, uh, they ended up on the Sabbath hiding in a cave because they didn't wanna be fighting on the Sabbath. And when the enemy found them in the cave, they did not move. They didn't get up. They just sat there and they were slain by their enemies because they were keeping the Sabbath. Um, what, a, what a tragic, legalistic, crazy, weird view of the Sabbath. And that's why, you know, it's hard for us to even get our brains around this, but that's the mindset of these guys that are angry at Jesus for picking corn on the Sabbath. And, and now it's gonna get even more intense um, as we get into chapter three. Let's take a look. Chapter three, Mark chapter three, verse one. It says, and he entered again into the synagogue and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. Notice in verse two, it says, and they watched him. Who are they? These are the religious leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. These are the type of people. They, want, they were actually 
very much into ruling the people and making sure nobody broke the Sabbath. And they were very uh, legalistic sort of, you know, there's even a, a, a term we say that's very pharisaical uh, because it's like uh, being a Pharisee and being legalistic. Um, how could religious leaders, think about this for a second, how could religious leaders get so far off course that they've completely lost the point of what the Sabbath was all about? Um, you know, uh, and, and, and it says here, they came, notice it says here, they came there and watched him that they might accuse him. And this is where I think one of the biggest problems, especially when it comes to religious leaders and what have you, um, is when they, they showed up with their minds already made up. They weren't there to hear anybody or learn anything. They knew that they were the right ones and that Jesus was surely the wrong one. Are you a person who thinks you're right about everything? Because chances are you're not. And it's funny, I know people that are uh, right a lot of the time, but when they get it wrong, they don't even really wanna admit that they were wrong. Like admit, are you a person that doesn't even admit when you, when you are wrong? Do you, are you able to say those, those words, I was wrong? Uh, some of you can't. I know people like this. Um, and it's, it's part of human nature to admit your wrongness, but do you show up with your mind already made up? I, I, I always worry when people uh, come to Athey Creek and, and they, they always say, well, I like this church and uh, I'm amazed, you know, everything you say, I agree with. <laughs> I don't even agree with me sometimes. <laughs> like it makes me a little nervous because what happens when I say something you, you don't agree with? Um, like, it's a funny thing. I hope you uh, read the Bible carefully and be like the Bereans. And don't just take what Brett says for gospel truth. Now, one thing that is a bit of a safety net for me and for us here at Athey is we're really going verse by verse through the Bible. Um, so that, that is safe. I mean, I'm not just sitting here giving you my opinions about a lot of things. Now, when I do share my opinion, I'll say, no, this is my opinion. Um, but, but, you know, that's the stuff you should really be careful about. Um, but but when, when the cool thing is, how much scripture does a church preach and read? Um, we're gonna read a whole chapter. Lord willing, we're gonna read Mark chapter three tonight. And you know, I, we're on pretty good ground as long as we're sticking to the scripture, right? <clears throat> but, but be cautious because um, a lot of times people have some kind of gauge, like I, I show up to that church and I go there because I agree with everything they say. Um, that's not really probably the best mindset. Even if you're an Athey Creeker, I would say um, come, with, uh, with an open mind to the word and say, Lord, if I have wrong thinking, like approach it with an attitude, Lord, if my thinking's off on anything, would you correct my thinking tonight? Um, we should all remain pliable and shapeable because the Lord, we're a work in progress to the day we die. And the moment you become hardened to being tra transformed and changed, um, that's, when you become unteachable, you'll also become unuse unusable. And also you become very wrong a lot. <laughs> um, here's a question for you. Is there someone in your life that you will absolutely listen to? Um, name that person right now in your mind. Now, if you don't have a person like that, then you need to get that person um, because otherwise that means you really do think you know everything. Um, you know, there's, there's sources that I think you should be held accountable to and me too. And I think that's even more important perhaps for a pastor because of the role that we play. I think there needs to be accountability. 
how thankful I am for my governing elder board here. We have strong men. And, and if you know the board here members, <laughs> we have seven governing elders at this congregation and I'm accountable to them. If one of our governing elders say, hey, Brad, we think, we think you need to do this or you need to change this, man, we're gonna sit down, pray through it, talk about it, but I'm gonna submit myself to the governing elder board at Athey and that's the way I love it. That's the way we started back in 1996. I, I actually was probably weird about that, uh, wanting that because I've seen it in other churches and even part of ministries I've been a part of where there were governing elder boards, but they sort of stopped being governing elder boards. And the pastor became too powerful and just started calling the shots and doing everything himself. And, and that doesn't work out for, I've, I've almost never seen that work out good. So when, by the time I got old enough at the ripe old age of 30, when we started Athey Creek, I thought, whatever we do, I wanna be accountable to a, a board of elders. And um, I just don't trust myself to be, and, and better men than me have totally whacked out and failed. So um, we gotta be careful. Now, if that's me, what about you as a, as a, as a person who's you know, living life? Do you have people that you're accountable to? Because the Bible kind of teaches that that's sort of the deal. The first thing that you and I should be accountable to is the word of God. That's the number one, you know, that almost goes without saying. You know, and like, like I mentioned earlier, Acts 17, 11, be like the Bereans. They were more noble than the men in Thessalonica. Paul, uh, you know, our book of Acts says um, that they were, receiving the word of God uh, with all readiness of mind. I like that. They came ready to, to receive the word. I love that you guys come to a Wednesday night Bible study ready to receive the word. That's, that's a huge step in the right direction. But they searched the scriptures daily to see if what those pre preachers were saying was, was true or false. Even they were, Paul says, that's great. You're even doing that with us. Paul says, you know, even check what I'm saying, Paul the apostle says, um, and that's why I say that often here at Athey Creek, always Acts 17, 11, at, whether you're at Athey Creek or wherever you're at, check uh, the scriptures. Um, but the second thing that I would say, not only the, the Bible is a good source to be held accountable to, that's the number one source, but the Bible does teach of other sources. For example, a multitude of counselors. That's also a good source of accountability. Uh, Proverbs eleven fourteen. you can jot that down in your notes. In Proverbs eleven fourteen. you know, where there's no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. The Bible teaches us there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And I would say, make sure and make those counselors godly, biblically oriented counselors. Because uh, there's a lot of counselors that are foolish counselors in the world. Uh, make sure the counselors you choose are very biblically based. That's actually hard to find, by the way, especially when it comes to the professional counseling world. Be very careful on that one. Uh, Athey Creek, we've looked high and low for good, biblical, godly counselors, and they're far and few between. Uh, watch out for that. That's something to be careful about. By the way, in the multitude of counselors, their safety. Um, we've observed something over the years here at Athey. People come in for counseling with some of our pastoral staff. Um, and I, I always crack up because um, people don't want to receive counsel, when it's, especially if it's true. People wanna hear what they wanna hear. So they'll find the counsel that will tell them what, what they wanna hear. Is that safety there? No, there's no safety there. Just finding somebody who agrees with you. Um, this is true. If you ask any of our pastoral team, here's how, we call it musical pastors. 
Some guy will come in, okay, I wanna talk with Pastor James. And so they, James sits down and uh, I don't know, my marriage is struggling. And, and James will say, well, here's what the Bible says. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for So you need to, to really die to yourself in this and love your wife unconditionally and sacrificially. Just like the Bible says, that's the best Bible counseling for any man, for any husband. And the guy's like, hmm, I don't like that. Um, my wife's an idiot and she's doing this and she's doing that. Well, the Bible doesn't actually talk about how you're supposed to think that way. Because um, you're an idiot and Christ still loves you. And so um, Christ loves his church unconditionally, sacrificially. So um, now here's the thing. So then he goes, I don't like James's counsel. So he goes to Pastor Gabe. And Pastor Gabe, uh, my, my wife's a jerk and she does this and this and Pastor Gabe, well, see, the Bible says you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Gabe, I don't like this. I'm gonna talk to Pastor Brad. Oh, I don't have Pastor Brett's phone number. Well, I'm gonna talk to Pastor Brett after the service. So he comes up, okay. And so so it tells me, you're two pastors. I don't like their counsel, but here's why. Now, here's the thing, that guy, I'll say the same thing Pastor James and Pastor Gabe said. Oh, Brett, it's more complex than just loving your wife as Christ. It's not. The Bible is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. That dude's a liar. Now, I guarantee that guy can find someone. Go find some counselor on counseling.com or whatever and christiancounseling.com and you'll find somebody that say, you know, you're right, you've been abused. Your wife is abusive and, and because of that, you, you really have the right to stand up for your rights. In fact, you should really divorce. Amen, brother, preach it. I, I hear the Lord, angels are singing now, divorce my wife. Uh, those are the angels that have fallen that are singing, uh, brother. You need to dump the bad counsel. I hope you have good, godly, biblical counseling. Um, be careful. Oh, we live in a world where this is all over the place. So a multitude of counselors, as long as, as, long as you're, we're getting biblical, solid, godly counsel. And, and then there's another safety net that I would say, and this is a tricky one as well, the same, same problem as far as godly, but others, others, not just counselors, but friends and family and, um, you know, people that love you and care about you. Uh, I'm always amazed, you know, um, mom and dad's not always right, but most of the time they are when it comes to their kids. That's what I've learned over the years. Uh, I've watched this for years. Now I know there's some moms and dads that get it wrong and giving their kids wrong counsel, it happens. But most of the time, parents get it right. If, if you're a young girl and you're dating a guy and your, your, your parents are saying, run for your life but mom, I love him. Um, but, but why would your mom and dad be saying, run for your life? How many times have I seen this? You know, especially when I was younger, I used, I used to do hundreds and hundreds of weddings. Now I don't do as many because there's just so many weddings at Athey Creek. I, I'd be doing weddings 24 hours a day uh, here at Athey. We just crank out the weddings. Uh, I just can't do them, uh, do them all. And, you know, and, and it's impossible. So but back in the old days, I used to do them all and, and we do hundreds and I've done over a thousand weddings in my ministry. Uh, over the years. But how many times I've seen that young lady who their parents were saying, run for your life. And then I would do the premarital counseling and I'd see the guy and I'd tell her, no, you need to run for your life. <laughs> and, and I've had, there's been girls in our congregation, guys too. Um, but I think I've, my heart goes out to the girls more for some reason, because guys can be real jerks. And, 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 and you know, if, I t if I tell the girl, no, your pastor's telling you to run for your life. Your parents are telling you to run for your life. And at the same time, she says, no, but I love him. 
And here he is playing, you know, Call of Duty in his parents' basement. Uh, he's 30 years old and doesn't have a job. And, uh, and she's like, but I love him. And you're just like, oh no, Lord. Listen to godly counsel and, and others can be a great safety net. Choose people, whether you have a godly counselor or, or say, you know what, if my parents who love me, they might, they're not gonna be perfect, no parents are, but they probably love you for the most part more than just about anybody else on the planet. So I just tell you, be really careful about blowing off your parents' counsel or maybe a close friend who loves you deeply. Be careful about blowing off. How many times have we heard the story where friends and everybody was saying, no, you're going off a cliff and people will just drive straight off the cliff. Um, the reason I say this is because, um, you know, here in our text, we got this, this, uh, this story of these religious guys who somehow thought they were so correct and so right God in the flesh is standing right in front of them and they're trying to do him in. How do religious leaders get so crazy level off course? Because they weren't listening to anybody. They, have their, they already had their minds made up. They show up and it says here in our text, they watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. Because of course, healing on the Sabbath day is horrible and illegal. That was their assumption. And that they were looking to accuse him. Um, don't be a person with your mind made up and you're not listening to anyone. Um, those leaders came not to worship, but to watch. Not to fellowship, but to find fault. <laughs> These leaders came to not be sincere, but to sin sniff. Watch out for that attitude, especially if you're going to church with that attitude, like a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Herodian. Don't, don't come to church with that idea. Um, anyway, all that to say, um, then, then we see what Jesus tells this guy to do. Now, this is amazing. He, he turns to the guy in the synagogue. Now, this is that synagogue in Capernaum where we, I, sh I showed you Capernaum. Remember the white sort of synagogue ruin that's there? This is the very synagogue where this happened, that, where I showed you on the video just last week or whenever that was. Um, so there's a guy probably standing in the back and Jesus turns and looks at him and says, he says right here, stand forth. I wonder if this guy made it an art form to stand in the back where nobody would notice him with his withered hand. A man with a withered hand in those days would have been sort of an outcast anyway. Um, but I love that the Lord calls him out and says, stand, stand in front, like move up here in the front. Um, sometimes before the Lord could do something in your life, he does require something of you. He wants you to do something that's doable. He does the miraculous part, which we're about to see. Um, but sometimes you gotta get up and move and do something that's even sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, most people are afraid of standing in front of a crowd. Uh, there's been studies done. Uh, it's like the second most uh, fearful thing among humans is to stand in front of a crowd and have to be in the, on the center of attention. Um, it's a fearful thing. Um, so this guy has to now stand in front of the whole synagogue. Um, remember that old saying that we talked about? Without him, we can't but without us, he won't. Sometimes he does require something of us before he will do his miraculous work. And so he's requiring this guy with a withered hand to stand forth. What is it the Lord wants you to do before he can do the miracle in your life that needs to happen, that's outside of your you know, ability? The Lord might have you do something you know, to stand forth first uh, before he can actually move you and even guide your life. The old saying is true, you can't steer a parked car. 
And sometimes the Lord wants you to get up and start moving. And then he starts to, remember it's all throughout the Bible. Um, the children of Israel, when they were crossing the Jordan River, kind of like the Red Sea story, where the, the, the priests were bringing the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River. But remember what they had to do? They had to start walking into the river with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, picture, you know, you walking into the Willamette River uh, uh, with, a, with a, a billion dollar box on your shoulders. And you're like, we're supposed to wade across because the Willamette River is pretty deep. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll have to hold your breath because the Ark of the Covenant was made of gold. So you'd be walking at the bottom of the river. Uh, and people, you'd look real stupid if nothing happened because you'd probably drown or you'd have to come up and say, the ark is the bottom of the lament. That's what was going on here. These guys, the priests go down their ankles and then they go deeper and deeper and pretty soon they're like neck deep and they're like, okay, Lord, now you can do something. And then the water parted and the people took the ark of the God. Like, it's, it's a great thing. They had to get wet before the Lord said, in fact, he waited laughably to the very last possible minute. The Lord could have opened the water before. Oh, we can go through now, you know, but the Lord required something of them. Uh, well, anyway, um, verse four, and Jesus, he said unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they held their peace. Probably the smartest thing they did in this story, not saying something, because they're, they're not, not the brightest people earlier. Um, he's, he's got them stumped. You know, he's baffling them. Uh, you know, obviously there's this man with withered hand standing in front of the whole crowd and he, and he raises this rhetorical question, you know, is it lawful to heal somebody uh, on the Sabbath day to do good or to, to, to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they held their peace. Um, by the way, in um, Matthew, if you, if you remember, we did a whole teaching on this man with the withered hand in Matthew 12, but I wanted to remind you uh, so, some, some other dialogue we get in Matthew. In Matthew 12, 11 through 12, Jesus said to them, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, uh, will he not lay hold on it to lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? So this, this is Jesus, and even Luke's gospel even has kind of a similar thing. Jesus answered them saying, which of you has an ass or an ox falling into a pit? and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day. And then the law, they should know the answer to this, by the way, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they should know the answer because Deuteronomy 22.4 says, thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. Pulling an animal, even if it's on the Sabbath day out of a hole is biblical. Did you know that? Um, <laughs> I, I wanna bring back uh, one of my favorite little videos um, um, that, that I wanna show you. Do you remember this? This is a sheep that had fallen into a, a ditch. Here we go. And this kid's pulling him out. You know, if you hear the audio of this, it's like, it's like the sheep is screaming, but he gets him out and the sheep runs free, frolicking in the grass and then right back in the water. <laughs> remember, how, remember how I've told you sheep are dumb? And the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Well, that's you right there in that picture. Um, I got another one. I brought a new one. Are you guys ready for this one? <laughs> Here's another guy who's working hard to get his, uh, his animal sheep out of this mud pit ditch. And he lifts them out with a great you know, pain and suffering. And the sheep's like finally free. And then once again, here we go. Wait for it. Plop. You can just hear the guy going, oh boy, you know. 
That's the Lord in that picture, just going, looking at you. Going, Not again. Um, <laughs> you gotta love that. But, um, but all that to say, uh, <laughs> Jesus asked them, you know, is it lawful to do this? And Jesus made that argument uh, in, the, in the other gospels uh, about pulling out your animal. Is it, which, what's more important, an animal or a person? And now for you Portland people, the answer on that is a person is more important than an animal, just in case you were wondering. Um, now, now this Jesus' response is, is amazing. Verse five, and when Jesus, he had looked around about on them with anger. Is it okay to be angry? Anybody wanna answer that? Yes, because Jesus says he looks at them with anger. What, what did that look look like? I have a theory. Um, did you know there's actually a picture of Jesus in the Bible of him, I think, with wrath? Um, you read Revelation chapter one, the description of Jesus. He's got eyes of, eyes of fire and he's got feet of bronze or glowing like in a fur furnace. Um, bronze is a, a, a mineral in the Bible that's a type of wrath and judgment. Um, his eyes are fire, his feet are like uh, bronze glowing furnace with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Is that Jesus looking angry? I think so. And when does that happen? It happens during the tribulation period where Christ is gonna pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. So understand, people mistake that Jesus is this peaceful hippie who's just always happy and he is, he's gracious and kind. And I mean, we, we, we don't have enough time tonight to talk about his goodness, but don't forget, he's got that part too that's a righteous anger. There is such thing as a righteous anger and a righteous wrath. Uh, we gotta understand that. There's a lot of churches that have forgotten that part of God and God's character and Christ's nature because uh, that's part of the story that's coming. The wrath of God is still coming on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But it's not just wrath, it's also grief. Look what it says here, it, verse five. And when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved, that's interesting, for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. Uh, again, we did this in October of 2022. Um, we called it the man with the withered hand. And we talked about it from Matthew 12, 9 through 16. Uh, and we covered the story in depth. Um, the, but I, I'd like to just remind you here, the man didn't respond with, uh, hello, I can't. I have a withered hand. You want me to stretch forth my hand? Uh, can't you see that it's withered? The reason I say that is because, remember his commandments are, are enablements. When God commands us to do something, he will enable you to do that thing. And you can sit around and say, I can't do that. You know what we do in modern day more than sitting around saying we can't? We try to come up with some other way to do it. We, we, we have problems, ailments, sins, addictions that we all stick in. And then the Lord says, just do it. Somebody should come up with a slogan like that. Just do it. Because <laughs> uh, it's biblical. Uh, he tells this man with a withered hand, stretch forth your hand. And he could have sat around saying, I can't. But it says, as he stretched forth his hand, his, his hand was restored a whole as the other. Our society says, nope, uh, we have to provide the solution. It's not that easy. Uh, we like to complicate solutions. And again, it's, it's like the marriage thing I just talked about. Um, people wanna have all kinds of complicated counseling about how you can fix your marriage. Um, but actually, uh, the whole love your wife as Christ loved the church thing goes, 
That's some of the best counseling you'll ever get as a husband in marriage. Um, you know, uh, love and respect uh, is, is actually the two big things the Bible says about marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect, or the word submit is part of the deal, um, but not in the negative worldly way of submission. The world messes that whole thing up. But in a godly, righteous behavior, a, a wife who reverences her husband, the Bible says, wife, see that she reverences her husband. Um, that's what the Bible says, to respect her husband. As it turns out, men actually appreciate respect. And as it turns out, wives actually appreciate being loved. And uh, the Bible tells us the way to do it. Nope, it's not that easy. We have to have three weeks. No, 12 weeks, because it's cost more. Um, 12 weeks of counseling for our marriage. No, that's not really the way. Uh, we like to call it the one-step marriage program. Jesus, bring Jesus into your marriage. Um, I'm an alcoholic, it's not that easy, Brett. Oh, it's not easy, I'll admit. If you're an alcoholic or you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to drugs or whatever, I understand. But you know, there's still a thing where ultimately you kind of have to say, um, I'm just not gonna do that anymore. Uh, it's not that easy, Brett. Uh, I need a 12-step program. Nope, you need a one-step program. Um, turn to Jesus, ask God for help, and stop drinking, stop taking drugs. It's not that simple. It's true with all sin, by the way. Now, I'm gonna get letters for this, and if you're part of a 12-step program or you know, celebrate recovery, I've spoken at those events of celebration. Like, I, I, I appreciate those things. I'm not saying they're all bad, but when the world tells you, you just, the Lord cannot just you know, deliver you and heal you, I think we're missing out on miracles. Here, Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. He could have said, oh, I need a 12-step program and I gotta go to PT, man, and have somebody start working with rubber bands and get my hands sort of unrithered. Uh, no, as it turns out, Jesus just said, stretch forth your hand. I think that people miss out on healing from God because we're sitting around uh, complaining about what we can't do. Um, you know, uh, bitterness. I, I hate that person. Love your enemies, Jesus said. And if Jesus had more to say on that, wouldn't he have? He just said, love your enemy. Well, I can't do that. His commandments are his enablements. He'll enable you to do that. Um, I, 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 I think maybe one of the more powerful examples of that is, um, I don't even know what to call it because we used to call it gender dysphoria like three weeks ago. But of course, that's a horrible term now, gender dysphoria, because it's like a dysfunction. And, and of course, it's not as, no, it is, it, it's, it's mental illness. And the world is saying, here's the solution. And, and that's one of the most crazy ones. I mean, can you, can you imagine even three or five years ago hearing what the world would say about you know, this, this idea of the gender issues? The whole state of Oregon installing tampon dispensers in all the boys' bathrooms in grade schools in Oregon? And we're, we think that's like legitimate and real and there's no such thing as a biological male and female. And like the world, we've lost our minds. And, the, and that, that's the world flying in the face of God saying, you have a dysfunction that is not really a dysfunction. So we're gonna just, we're gonna deal with it in our own worldly way. And sadly, there's a lot of people who are victims. I, I feel like no one loves the transgender person except for Jesus and Jesus's people. The church of Jesus Christ, I think those that stick to God's word, they will be the greatest helper to the transgender person who's suicidal and depressed and anxiety and all those things, if, if they'll listen to truth and hear the truth, the truth will set them free. Not giving them, you know, puberty blockers and, um, you know, affirmation of their own gender, whatever they think they are, that's not helping people at all. We could go on and on, drugs in Portland. 
Um, the, the solution is to give, we give them syringes and we're helping get them drugs. We wanna pay for drugs so they don't get the fentanyl laced drugs so that they can continue to be homeless. And there's thousands of needles all over. If you walk in downtown Portland, you're going to see used needles all over the streets. It's, if, if you're not from this area, if you're watching online, um, people ask me, Brett, is Portland as bad as it seems? It's worse. Nobody's showing how bad it really is. Like it's, it's so heartbreaking if you go downtown Portland. And our government's solution is to, you know, affirm them with their drugs and their genders and their tents and all the things that the world is trying to, you know, affirm. Meanwhile, nobody's willing to speak the truth in love. And it's heartbreaking. So I think one of the things we've done is we've said it's never that easy and it's more complicated than that. Meanwhile, Jesus says, flee fornication. Oh, no, 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 Brad, I've got a pornography addiction. Uh, and it's not, you know, smut, it's pornography. The study of pornography. And I have this addiction and it's not that easy. I have to join a pornography recovery group. Well, Jesus must have been mistaken then in his word when he said, flee fornication. Guess what the Greek word for fornication is? Porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. Now, I, I belabor that point, and we're supposed to finish this chapter tonight, and I, <laughs> I need to get moving here. Verse uh, six. Um, um, in verse six, we have an, another group enter here. It says in verse six, the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy them. Interesting groups that are joining forces. The Pharisees hated the Herodians and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. The Herodians held political power and were most, um, most uh, scholars believe the Herodians were a political party that supported King Herod Antipas. If you remember our study of the different Herods, Herod Agrippa, uh, Herod, you know, Philippi, Herod Antipas. Well, the Roman emperor's ruler over much of the land of the Jews from 4 BC to 89, 39 AD, the Herodians basically favored submitting to the Herods, which were the Romans guys that were, that were supposed to be in charge uh, of, of that Judea and all that region. They're basically saying, let's just be good citizens to the Romans, otherwise we'll die. And let's just live, they were actually fairly Hellenistic, if you know what that means. It's just that they were, they were already kind of worldly. They accepted sort of the Greek worldview. They weren't like practicing Jews. They were Jews nonetheless, but they were submitted to Rome uh, and basically did this for uh, political expediency. So you can imagine the Pharisees who were not worldly and Hellenistic, they were keeping the law to the nth degree. And now the Herodians and the Pharisees are partnering together. Why? Because they both hated Jesus with a passion. Um, and it says there, they gathered their, their team together. And then it says in verse eight, but <clears throat> Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, uh, which is modern day Jordan and from beyond Jordan, the Jordan River. Uh, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. Uh, and when they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him. So Jesus is, you know, running from these you know, running away from these crowds with the Herodians and the Pharisees. And now he's going all the way into J Jordan. When, when I take groups to Israel, I love bringing people to Jordan. And here's why. Much of the Bible happened in the country of Jordan. People call Israel the Bible land, which it is. I'm not disputing that. 
But they don't understand that, um, you know, um, the Holy Land really does include, if you would, uh, the the nation of Jordan. In fact, 85% of the Old Testament happened in Jordan. Uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was more in that Jordanian side. Uh, Jacob wrestling with God at Peniel at the Fort of Jabbok. Remember that? That's in Jordan. That's a place where we drive. I, I, sometimes I'll stop off on a cliff and I'll show you a little river right where the Fort of Jabbok is. And that's where Jacob wrestled with God. Guess where Jesus was baptized? The country of Jordan. Oh, Brett, no, I was baptized where Jesus was baptized, there by the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River. Uh, it's a beautiful spot and it looks like a Jesus baptismal spot, but it wasn't the spot. If you go to the place where Jesus was baptized, you have to go south closer to the Dead Sea and you have to go on the side of Jordan and go with your passport and get across there because that's where he was baptized by John the Baptist. Um, uh, and by the way, Tyre and Sidon is more of the Mediterranean side and Lebanon. So Jesus and his disciples, they're going all over the place and large crowds are starting to gather. Um, and remember I told you that, that you know, we divide the gospels into kind of the three years of his ministry. The first year was exposure where people started to know who Jesus, that's the first year. The second year was when popularity and multitudes and crowds and people freaking out. That's where we are right here in chapter three of Mark. That's what, that's what this is telling us. As he's traveling around, he just can't get away from the crowds it's, and it's gonna get even crazier. Year three, we call that the beginning of the end for, you know, because that's where in year three, that's when everybody started planning Jesus's destruction, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes. And now not only are the multitudes and the Herodians all into it, but now the demons are gonna get involved as well. So check it out. It says there in verse nine, and he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude lest they should throng him. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. So, I mean, people healed. Now people are like pressing in. It's like, it's like you know, when the Beatles were running around and people were pressing in, wanting just to see the Beatles. Jesus is the most popular person on the earth right now. Um, and people pressing, wanting to touch him. Well, check this out, verse 11. And the unclean spirits when they saw him, fell down before him and cried saying, thou art the son of God. And he, verse 12, straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now, this is a strange thing. Jesus tells them, the demons, stop promoting me. Um, You know, some people say there's no such thing as bad press. Well, Jesus proves that this is bad press. He doesn't want demonically influenced people, demons, uh, promoting, oh, this is the son of God right here. Uh, and he says, don't do that. Now, by the way, the demons have to obey him. Um, why would Jesus um, sort of forbid the free advertising of unclean spirits? I mean, hey, at least they're saying he's the son of the living God. Um, um, but I, I, I believe that part of that answer lies in the fact that um, the demonic spirits are not only called unclean spirits, but in the Bible, they're also called lying spirits. Why would lying spirits come and tell the truth all of a sudden? Um, I think the answer is, is something that is, we're, we're told not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. One of his devices is confusion. And this is something that's gonna cause confusion. These demons were causing confusion because people had discernment. Those are demon-possessed dudes. And they're saying he's the son of God. And that causes 
You know, people think, well, he must be, well, we'll see the response here in a second. They're gonna be confused by this. Um, and so, you know, this worldly uh, use of, you know, you know it's, it's like, um, you know, what if some, you know, evil website says, hey, we'd like to promote Athey Creek. Uh, we'll put Athey Creek advertisements on our evil website. Uh, well, uh, we're not gonna wanna do that. Uh, you know, Paul told the Corinthian church, make sure you have this clear sound of the trumpet. Because uh, if you don't have a clear sound of a trumpet, people will be confused and they won't know when to go to battle. I feel like sometimes churches try to, you know, get press in sort of worldly matters, manners and ways and it only causes confusion. I think we should be different from the world, set apart. That's why Jesus tells these guys, uh, stop this right now. Don't be making me known by your demonic unclean lies and what have you. Well, verse 13, and he goeth up into a mountain and called unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained 12 that they should be with him, that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, which he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. We did this on Sunday, verses 13 through 19. So if you missed that, you can pick it. We talked about being chosen, the 12 that he chose. And does God still choose? Yes. And we talked about election. Very important teaching on that. Verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him for they said, he is beside himself. <laughs> what did they think? Um, I'm not sure. It's kind of an interesting uh, thing about the way this is put. But basically, have you ever been so busy that you didn't have time to eat? Um, now I do that, I, I, I'm really bad at that because I am busy, I'm a busy guy and I, I, you know, you're supposed to spread out your meals during the day, that's one of my weakest things. I, I, I can go without eating for a long time, but there's like a, a, a moment in time that I snap and hangry is the word. It's like I have a raging hunger suddenly and uh, I want a giant meal. I know that's not the healthiest way to do it, uh, but uh, that, but, but these guys are like, man, Jesus hasn't even taken time to eat. Uh, he's gonna, you know, he's gonna fall down in weakness because he, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're saying he's, he's not thinking right. That's what, that's what they're saying when they say he's sort of beside himself. He's, he's kind of out of his mind because he hasn't eaten anything. We need to help him. Um, by the way, there's more insight on this in John chapter four, verse 31 through 34. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him to eat? Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was talking about something that is actually kind of amazing. When you're serving the Lord and doing what God wants you to do, sometimes you, you don't need the normal energy boost. You know, they're like, Jesus said, I have meat you don't even know of. Like who slipped him a power bar? Come on, like what's going on? He, he has something that he, no. Jesus says, it, you know, the, the meat that I have is to do the will of, of God. Um, and J Jesus is sustained by doing the work of the ministry. And I think there's a truth to that. Those of you that are serving and ministering, people ask our teams, you know, all the time, how does your church do five services on the weekend? Um, 
And, you know, they always say that to me, like it's some big deal. I think a school teacher has a harder job because they have to do what I do on a weekend every day of the week. They're teaching, you know, five classes of studies and kids and junior high, especially if you're a junior high pastor, you're crazy. Or a junior high teacher, uh, you're nuts. Uh, But I admire that. But, you know, all of our teams with, uh, you know, the parking lot and the worship team and the children's ministry, how do they do it? Well, most of our teams, if you ask them, they say, you know what? There's something about serving the Lord even with five services that kind of makes it not only hard, but it's kind of fun. Like we really find ourselves enjoying and the Lord gives you kind of a, I think a a, a spiritual food that uh, is refreshing, not tiring. Well, verse 22, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub and by the prince of the devils casteth he out the devils. Where did they get this harebrained idea? Well, these guys, had enough discernment probably, um, the the scribes, um, when they saw the demons in verse 11, the unclean spirits, when they saw him crying out, thou art the son of God, they're they're using that now and saying, it's by the power of Beelzebub. Now you might say, Brett, who in the world is Beelzebub? Um, Well, it tells us here a little bit, he's called the, the, you know, and by the prince of the devils, uh, he cast out devils. Uh, so there's a little bit of a story with this title of Beelzebub, um, which means um, Lord of the Demons. But a lot of people believe, the Jews believe that was sort of a, it was a derogatory name of Satan. And here's where it came across. You'll come across the name Beelzebub in different ways. The first one is called Beelzebul. You'll come across that in your Bible. And that's the name that happened um, when, remember in the Southern uh, side of Jerusalem, there was the dung gate, um, if you know your Jerusalem gates and stuff, and, and it's down by the Southern Steps. It's a lower section of Jerusalem. It goes, it goes down the Kidron Valley, but that's where all the trash and the junk and the sewage and everything flowed out of Jerusalem, even in ancient times. So that was the dirty, gross land dump area. It was also called Gehenna, as I've told you, which means what? Hell, and why did they call it again? Well, it's where Solomon and you know some of those uh, kings of Jerusalem would allow Moloch worship, where they would sacrifice babies on the altars of Moloch, uh, sizzling red hot arms, iron gods that they'd put babies on and sizzle them to death. Um, Moloch is basically ancient abortion. And um, it's horrifying that we do that even more today. Uh, don't even have to say that, it's, it's horrifying, abortion. But they did that in Jerusalem and God, by the way, that was one of the last straws. God said, okay, you guys are toast because of that. Um, but that's why they called it hell, uh, Gehenna. So it was a trash dump. It was where all the manure of the city was, which when you have camels, goats, sheep, you had a lot of manure. And so um, it was, they, they basically gave a derogatory name to Satan as Beelzebul, Lord of the dung. But what happens when you have a lot of dung? Anybody? Flies. And maybe you'll, you'll hear the word Beelzebub and if you studied it in college and read some of the different things, you might realize, oh, that's Lord of the flies. Where did it turn from Lord of the dung, Lord of the flies? Well, you see that transition in the Bible. And the flies were that same area, Lord of the flies. But by the time the first century came, it was an idiom by the Jews. They called Beelzebub um, basically Satan. Um, and Beelzebub, it was a derogatory term used for Satan. Um, it, was, it was basically calling him, he's the Lord of manure, Lord of the flies and Lord of the demons. Um, and, and, and so you, you have to understand, well, that's good. They're calling him Beelzebub. 
But you have to understand it's bad because they're saying Jesus is doing this by the power of Beelzebub. They're using, they're not even saying he's doing this by the power of Satan. They're saying he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. So what is Jesus gonna say about what they said? Well, we see that in verse 23. It says, and he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then will he spoil his house. In a nutshell, Jesus says, what you guys are saying is simply illogical. It doesn't make any sense at all. And by the way, that's not a bad, uh, you know, that's not a bad thing to say. Um, to say, you're just illogical. That's what Jesus is basically saying. How can what you're saying be even possibly true? It makes no sense whatsoever. I think that's an okay response today because there's a lot of people saying things like this that makes no sense whatsoever. So we need to watch out for that and be careful. Well, anyway, another thing we learned from this is Satan is referred to by Jesus as a strong man. Did you notice that? Uh, It says that if Satan, you know, Uh, Pardon me, no man enters into a strong man's house and spoils good, except he first bind the strong man. Um, This is good news, by the way. Um, But who binds the strong man? Well, that's Jesus. I think that it's a wrong thinking doctrinally, biblically, when people say, I bind you, Satan. Um, If you're listening to Kenneth Copeland, which is not a thing you should be listening to, does not teach solid Bible teaching at all. But when you get those guys that are gyrating, I bind you, devil. Well, I think they're just off course already. Um, Michael the Archangel, who is Satan's opposite? It's Michael the Archangel. It's not Jesus. People think Jesus and Satan are battling it out or God and Satan are battling it out. Satan is a created angel, created by God, very far below God and very far below Jesus. Satan's opposite is Michael the Archangel. There, if you wanna see a good, you know, good team battle, you don't put the Los Angeles Rams against the Athey Creek Cougars. Um, you know, that, that'd be like God against Satan. You know? uh, who's gonna win? Well, we wouldn't be holding our breath. Um, but you wanna see equal, so, and, and remember what Jude says in Jude uh, verse nine, um, remember it says, when, when it says, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. And it says, he, Michael, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Even Michael the archangel, who had the power, question, if you know your Bible, who's gonna ultimately subdue Satan? Michael, book of Revelation tells us that. Michael's gonna do him, do him in, chain him up, throw him in the abyss. That's Michael who's gonna do that. And he's not even gonna break a sweat. Um, And so here's the one who can destroy Satan, Michael. And even he says, I'm not gonna bring railing. I I bind you, Satan. No, he doesn't do that. He just, the Lord rebuke thee. I think we need to take the whole heebie-jeebie thing out of demonic stuff because it is powerful. Satan is powerful, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't have to panic or freak out or gyrate or yell, I bind you. We, we can just pray and say, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan, and just trust that the Lord has the power to do all these things. Watch out for the gyrations and the antics. Uh, but 
Um, I believe the, the strong man still needs to be bound, but it's the Lord who does that. And I think we get to pray. We use the power of prayer and seek the Lord to bind the strong man. The Lord is the one who does that. Well, verse 28, Jesus goes on and says, verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith whosoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Why does Jesus here articulate the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin at this moment and at this juncture? Because that's, that's what they're doing. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this helps us understand, by the way, what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Um, by the way, again, uh, we did a teaching in Matthew on this called the unpardonable sin. Matthew uh, chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, um, in-depth teaching on what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it basically gets down to not believing in Jesus, denying the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the job of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus, to speak of Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit is confirming and you're denying, you're committing, that's what these guys are doing. Here's Jesus healing people and speaking truth and love and empower. And they're saying, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebub. That's as blasphemous as you could ever get. And it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? To heal people? To have people gyrating on the floors of Pentecostal churches? To have people swinging from the chandeliers? That's not what the Holy Spirit's purpose is. Let me do a quick reminder of what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing. Jesus made it really clear. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Okay, so this is what Jesus says the Holy Spirit's gonna do. Teach you all things. Um, and then John 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter has come, who, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. What does the Holy Spirit do? He's gonna speak of Jesus, point to Jesus. And that's what happens. Remember when I told you about the Holy Spirit is with you? What is he doing? He's pointing to Jesus. You need Jesus. Um, we talked about that on Sunday. And then in the next chapter, John 16, I'm just giving you the high points, uh, seven through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will, now note this, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. One of the main works of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of sin, reprove the world of sin and of righteousness um, because they don't believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit's gonna say, believe in Jesus. So when you resist the work of the Holy Spirit or blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're speaking against what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do to convict you of sin. It goes on in the next verse, that's verse uh, nine. And then in verse 10, it goes on and says, of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. Notice verse 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it to you. 
Um, the work of the Spirit is to show you Jesus, point to you to Jesus, remind you of your sin, and the answer to sin is Jesus. So when somebody commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I know it's a long way around of saying, you're basically not saved. When you commit the blasphemy, how do you know if you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If you died and you died in that condition of saying, I don't believe in Jesus, then you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, Brett, I said that when I was 18, I said, I do not believe in Jesus and I reject Jesus and I don't believe. Uh, I've committed that. No, you haven't, because you still can say, I changed my mind. I, I, I repent of that sinful blasphemy and I turn to Jesus and believe in him. You'll never really know if you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit until you um, have committed it uh, and death is where you can't, there's no returning. So just in summary, the work of the Holy Spirit, just as we showed you, uh, he will glorify Jesus Christ. That's his work, number one. He will teach us and remind us of all truth, number two. And he will convict us of sin, number three. If you reject that, the work of the Holy Spirit, um, and you don't believe in Christ, uh, then you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, that's just a quick version of what we did uh, in the Ma Matthew's gospel. Well, let's finish this up and wrap it up for the evening. Uh, verse 31. There came then his brethren and his mother and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him and they said unto him, behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Now you might say, what's, this seems so disrespectful. That's not what Jesus meant. You gotta remember, Jesus has got multitudes thronging him now and he hasn't seen mom and brothers for a while. Um, but he raises a rhetorical question, which means he's using this as a teaching point. He's, he's, he's wanting to teach a lesson. Um, now this is interesting because verses 34 through 20, uh, uh, 35 there, um, Jesus is making the point that's kind of interesting. By the way, Jesus, his half-brothers, James and Jude, by the way, they both wrote epistles, but they never mentioned that Jesus was their half-brother. Have you ever noticed that in, in those epistles? Like if I were writing an epistle, I'd say, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> like I'm related, you know. I would at least point that out, but neither of them did. Why is that? Um, and I think there's a truth there. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus, who's saved and is a Christian, is closer to him than his physical brothers and his mother. We get to have a personal relationship with Jesus that's greater than any family relationship you possess in this world or in this life. Um, anyone who's in Christ is closer to Jesus than even his own physical family. Um, that's the reason he looked around and said, these, they're closer to kin than me, than my mother, even my mother and my brothers. Um, and that's an important thing for us to be rightly related to God in Christ Jesus, having received him as savior, which gives us the right uh, as being heirs of the sons of God. Jesus is putting an exclamation point to the family relationship, the adoptions of sons and daughters that we talked about on Sunday. That is the most important relationship of all, even greater than your biological uh, family. Um, and that's, he's not disrespecting his mom or his brothers. He's saying, there's a, there's a teaching point here that you need to know, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Well, it's these people. He says, these are the ones, the same, um, whoever shall do the will of God, 
the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. I hope you have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is only getting into even more uh, some controversial times. They're gonna wanna hunt him down. They're gonna wanna indict him and kill him. And that's ramping up in chapter four. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. And Lord, we're thankful again for your word that's living and powerful. I pray again that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. Lord, if there be things that we come with a preconceived idea or minds made up that you wanna adjust or change. Um, Lord, I know some of the things I've even talked about, about counseling and the value of 12-step programs. And Lord, um, I know there's a lot of people that will hear that with a great defensiveness. But at the same time, I pray that maybe instead of having our minds made up to be open to hearing what your word says about these things, having our hearts be tapped and maybe to acknowledge the power that you possess to redeem and save and deliver even from the hardest of addiction, to deliver even from the worst of marriages and help us to fix things that are messed up. So I pray you'd give us ears to hear, all of us, Lord, myself included, that we would be people that are teachable, shapeable, that we'd submit to your word. So Lord, we thank you for this passage. Now may it bring forth good fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.